0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we wanted to bring you two books, one from a debut novelist, the other from a seasoned pro, that sort of toy with the same premise but end up in wildly different places. Soon, we'll hear from award-winning author Edwige Dantika—she's the seasoned pro, by the way— talking about her 2013 book, Claire of the Sea Light, which starts with the disappearance of a young girl. But first, author Violet Coopersmith just put out her first novel. It's called Build Your House Around My Body, and it also starts with a disappearance, but is, at its core, a ghost story. And Cooper Smith tells NPR's Ari Shapiro that writing the book felt like she was performing an exorcism on herself.
1: Build Your House Around My Body is a ghost story, a sprawling novel that spans generations. It has some set pieces familiar from Hollywood horror movies and Brothers Grimm fairy tales, like An Exorcism and A Haunted Forest. But because this book is set in Vietnam, the forest is an overgrown rubber tree plantation. The Exorcism doesn't have crucifixes or holy water. The story begins with the disappearance of a young woman named Winnie, and then it works its way backwards through time— Winnie has a lot in common with the author, Violet Coopersmith. They're both Vietnamese-American women of mixed racial background who moved to Vietnam in their early 20s.
2: I really didn't intend to to have a character uh, so close to me play the biggest role in the book. Um, Winnie's part was originally supposed to be much smaller, but she kept growing um, I think, uh, to to anchor the story as the story itself kept getting more and more complex.
1: This is your first novel, and before this, you wrote a collection of short stories that was also populated by ghosts, as this book is. A- as a writer, what appeals to you about the supernatural?
2: Well, when I wrote The, the Frangipani Hotel, the short story collection, I was very interested in... The metaphor of the ghost um, hmm. as sort of a stand-in for the immigrant, because I thought, oh, it's such, a, it's such a perfect figure, the ghost, who's sort of trapped between worlds and hmm. doesn't really belong anywhere. But with the novel, I was more attracted to the ghost as a way of, of getting revenge huh. and as a figure who, who has this agency that was denied to them in life.
1: There, there's a piece that you wrote for the Huffington Post way back in 2014 called The Beginner's Guide to Vietnamese Ghosts, and you began it by writing, Vietnamese ghosts aren't that scary as long as you know what it is that they want. If it isn't staying dead, then there's probably a reason, and all you have to do is give the ghost the thing that it is seeking, revenge, redemption, a resolution. Which sounds like such a pragmatic approach <laughs> to something so like spooky and uh, you know impossible to fully understand.
2: Yeah, well, when I was living in Vietnam, ghosts were just a kind of everyday thing. Everyone just had their own ghost stories, and they were kind of blasé about it. Hmm. And I witnessed an exorcism in the Central Highlands. and Which I've, is
1: where part of this book takes place. And yes. there is also an exorcism scene.
2: <laughs> this was that I did draw on this experience for the writing of that chapter. But in real life, it was much less intense and... Uh, The ghost, it turned out, was like a vegetarian, and so it was upset at (laughs) the offerings of chicken that that were being left for it. Oh! And so that's why it was causing problems.
1: You know, you're sitting in suburban Philadelphia, and I'm in Washington, D.C., and you're saying the ghost was a vegetarian and upset at the offerings of chicken, which seems easy to laugh at, but I imagine that in the moment felt very real. Maybe it still feels very real. How do you kind of bridge that?
2: Oh, it, it always feels real to me. And um, ghosts and ghost stories by something that that I just, I grew up with. And I do believe in ghosts. And I don't think I would write about them as much if I didn't.
1: So much fiction about Vietnam is about wars or colonialism. And and that certainly factors into this book, but it is not the focus. It's sort of the context lurking in the background. Why did you want to approach this from that perspective?
2: Because I I did want to subvert expectations uh, because I think uh, originally fiction about Vietnam, Americans expected, like, G.I. stories, war trauma, and then it evolved to expecting, like, a tender portrait of an immigrant family in America. And I wanted a, a story about Vietnam that was more than the war and and something they they wouldn't come into expecting Mm -hmm. um i like to think of like the the book itself as a kind of house like a haunted house and the war with america is a ghost but it's kind of trapped in the basement
1: there's a scene in a graveyard near the very beginning of this book and one character says unfinished business always leaves dangerous openings and in my experience it will always come back to haunt you but as you say, while it might be the ghost locked in the basement, colonialism is also part of the unfinished business. The Vietnam War is part of the unfinished business. Like, these things are not exactly resolved either.
2: No, it's, um. well, there's uh, the haunted forest in the book. It gets burned down, but then it has new growth that's always coming back. And it has these old scars on their trunks. And I thought that was just a a perfect visual way to explore trauma.
1: And some of the rubber trees are still weeping. Some are still bleeding.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Because it, it doesn't go away. The scars from the history, they don't go away.
1: I'm just thinking back to you saying that ghosts in Vietnam are an everyday fact of life and nobody questions them. And the same would not be said for the United States, generally speaking. And I wonder why you think that is.
2: I don't know, because it's, it's not as if America doesn't have its, its own share of traumatic history. It's just much closer to the surface in Vietnam, how I experienced it. Hmm. I think in some ways that's healthier.
1: You mean to actually process it rather than pretend you're not being haunted?
2: Yeah, I guess processing it as, as a ghost, whether you believe in them or not.
1: Being haunted can have many different meanings.
2: What does it mean to you? I wanted to explore the, the haunting of being hurt in any way, and how it occupies a little corner of you. It's your own personal little ghost in the haunted house of your mind. And for me, what I was, I did, I felt haunted when I came back to America after living in Vietnam for about three years. And mostly by, by the the violence that I saw against women being perpetrated against against my friends, against me, just kind the everyday misogyny um, hmm. that, that drains you, and it felt like a spirit inside you, a something that possesses you. Um, and so th- the book was kind of my own way of of performing an exorcism on myself hmm.
1: I wonder if having a ghost almost makes it easier because misogyny and violence and trauma are so amorphous. It's hard to perform an exorcism on them, but you can perform an exorcism on a ghost.
2: Yes. So I don't, I don't, know, if, I don't know if it worked. I feel like the, the ghost is never really going to go away. And for, for the characters in the story uh, who are trying to process their own traumas, by the end, um, either they've they, they think that they have escaped it, or they've come to the realization that they they never will.
1: Violet Cooper Smith's debut novel is Build Your House Around My Body. Thank you for talking with us about
0: it.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: The community at the core of Edwidge Danticat's 2013 book, Claire of the Sea Light, is so tight, so connected, that when a young girl goes missing, they all share in a little bit of that pain. But Danticat tells NPR's Rachel Martin that she doesn't consider them victims, but instead survivors, who really only have each other to turn to, to process the loss.
3: On her seventh birthday, a little girl named Claire disappears in a seaside Haitian village, Her mother died during childbirth, and her father is a poor fisherman, struggling to make ends meet. Just moments before disappearing, Claire's father agreed to let a local woman adopt her in hopes of giving his daughter a better life. Word of Claire's disappearance spreads through the village, and from there, the reader is taken on a journey through time, connecting lives together in unexpected ways. Edwige Dantika is the author of several award-winning works of fiction. She is also a 2009 MacArthur Fellow. Claire of the Sea Light is her first new work of fiction since winning that prestigious award. She joins us from member station WLRN in Miami. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having
4: me. I'd love if we could just start off by having you introduce us to this young girl. Well, Claire, her Creole name would be Claire Limielame is a little girl who is uh, born when her mother dies in childbirth, and her father feels as though he won't be able to take care of her the way he would like to. So he makes this really difficult choice to give her to Madame Gael, who is a well-to-do woman in town. And Claire is luminous, as luminous as her name, and a lucky and unlucky little girl at the same time.
3: To give us a sense of this place, this village, and this young woman, would you mind reading a bit from the book? Near the end, there's a scene where Claire is walking through a market.
4: Yes. Salt was life, she would often hear the adults say. Some of the fishermen's wives would throw a pinch of crushed salt in the air for good luck before their men left for the sea. Some would also refuse to eat or wash or comb their hair until their men came back. When zombies ate salt, it brought them back to life. Or so she had always heard. Maybe if she ate enough salt, she would finally understand why her father wouldn't let her wander, flâner. She would always try, though. Sometimes, while her father was at sea, she would walk through the open market and pretend that she was one of those children sent to buy provisions to bring home to a mother and she would pick up things at the market and put them down, raising, then crushing, the hopes of the vendors who would mumble under their breath as she walked away. Every now and again, one of the vendors would shout, just like her mother, and she would ask herself what else she might do to make them say even more often that she was just like her mother, besides dying, that is.
3: There are a lot of victims in this story, not just this young girl who has lost her mom, but there are several characters throughout this narrative who, through no doing of their own, are made to suffer from some grief. I wonder if you could talk about how that sense of loss or longing connects all these
4: people and brings this story to life. I don't think of them as victims. I think of them more as survivors, and the way that they survive is by the sense of community, that this town offers, one of the things that Claire's mother liked to say was, we must all look after one another. Because their town is so small, and they're sort of precariously always on the verge of instability, the healing comes through their coming together as a community. There is a real sense of place in this book. It is a small village, and you bring to life the people who
3: who make up the town, uh, characters who might be familiar to a lot of us, the shopkeeper, the schoolmaster, the undertaker, who also happens to be the mayor. There's a radio host. Are these people who are familiar to you in your
4: own life? Well, the town itself, Villrose, is modeled after the town where my mother was born. It was a town that was very devastated um, after the after the earthquake, and I still have... Uh, some family members there. But I wanted to have that sense of familiarity in the community so that you meet people there that you might find in in any other town, but they're singular in in their individual issues and their problems and the way they interact with the rest of the town. I understand you yourself were separated from your own parents when
3: you were growing up. Do you mind sharing the circumstances of that separation?
4: Well, my my father left uh, when I was two, And my mother, when I was four, um, they went to Brooklyn. We were not a family of means, and my parents, I think, had the difficult choice that a lot of parents have. I stayed behind with my uncle and his wife, and we grew up in a house that was full of children like us, um, cousins whose parents were in Canada, in the Dominican Republic. We had also grown up with this notion, and I think this is something I wanted to show in the book, that family is not always just mother, father. I didn't feel abandoned. you know. I Even at, at that young age, I understood that it was um, something that my parents were trying to do to offer us a better opportunity. There is one point in the book, one of the characters talks about how
3: feeling abandoned by a parent is is the most profound kind of loss.
4: And, that and that another is, one says feeling abandoned by a child is, is the uh, second most. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a, a volley of loss, of separations that one doesn't choose.
3: You say that you understood uh, your parents' reasons for leaving when you were young, but was there a, a point when you did feel that they had left you inexplicably?
4: This is why I understood it very young, because I realized that I was able to go to a particular kind of school because my parents were abroad. And every month, this money would come that enabled us to do certain things, get our uniforms on time, get our shoes made, which you could do at that time. And I had a crooked foot, so I had to have a special boot. You know, and I used to write... Letters to my parents, and I used to go to the calling center once a week with my brother and my uncle and aunt to talk to them. Can you describe another character in this book? And that is the sea, which literally
3: kind of pushes and pulls this narrative along. Mm -hmm. How did that come
4: to you as a part of this story? I just fell in love with the idea of writing about the sea. And there are many proverbs about the sea in Haitian Creole. You know, one is, be crass. You know, the sea doesn't hide dirt. And proverbs about, you know, my back is as large as the sea, which is something you say if you if people start talking badly about you. And of course, for a lot of people, in terms of migration, the sea is also the way out. So you have an island and you have the sea and, and it's uh, extraordinarily fascinating to me.
3: You are able to draw us into these characters' lives, sometimes very quickly. And I found myself at the end of the book wanting to know more, wanting to stay with them longer. I wonder if you if you feel that way inevitably. Do you build out the next chapter of their lives in your imagination? Have you thought about Claire and what kind of young woman she would become?
4: Oh, when I was done with the book, I I kept having this talk with my editor because... Up until we had the galleys, it was still so open-ended, and she kept asking me, "Where does Claire go? Where does Claire go?" <laughs> and I and I realized that I didn't want to let her go. <laughs> Someone said, "You know, um, a good story is like a painting. You know, you you might wonder what comes before and what comes after, but you're you're just mesmerized by what you're seeing." Edwige Danticat, her latest novel
3: is called *Claire of the Sea Light*. Thank you so much for talking with us at Reach.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Melissa Gray, Hiba Ahmad, Haley Blassingame, Eric McDaniel, Barton Girdwood, Rina Advani, Barry Gordimer, Sarah Handel, Mia Venkat, Deborah George, and Acacia Squires. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.